Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B, SaaS, and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Today, we're joined by Bill David Dow, longtime Silicon Valley venture capitalist, founder of More David Dow, best-selling author of The Virtual Corporation, and now his latest book, The Autonomous Revolution. Today, we will be covering four main topics with William. First, how technology advancements are leading to the autonomous revolution. Second, the intersection of technology and changing macroeconomic trends. Third, autonomous revolution, the third social phase change. What does that mean? And then finally, today's big tech equals tomorrow's government regulated utility. Bill, please take a moment to give a brief background of your overview to becoming a guest on the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. Well, I worked for a long time in Silicon Valley. I got a PhD at Stanford, and then went to work in a research lab, and then became very interested in marketing, and uh, ended up running marketing and sales at Intel, and then did venture capital. And then when I uh, decided I didn't want to really be full-time in business anymore, I started writing books. So uh, I actually, I started writing books when I entered venture capital. So I enjoyed writing, and I've written a number of books that have been commentaries on technology. Well, before we jump into your latest book, The Autonomous Revolution, could you just take a moment to reflect on the major inflection points that you have seen in a technology evolution over your career, taking us up to current day? Well, I was thinking about this, and you know, when I was at Intel, and I I joined Intel in 1973, and it was just after they had introduced the first microprocessors, and I ended up running the microprocessor division. And at Intel, we were convinced we were changing the world, and uh, you know, we we thought of kicking off a technology revolution and everything like that. And what I've come to realize is that we didn't change the world. We automated a lot of it. Mm-hmm. The world stayed the same, but it ran more efficiently. And, you know, cash registers worked better. Traffic lights worked better. But business didn't change. We still had spreadsheets. They just ran on a computer instead of on paper and pencil. And we had better inventory management systems. But we didn't transform the structure of things. And what is different now is that the recent, the real thing that is happening with our technology today is that we are changing the structure of things. And by that, I mean, you know, a bank becomes an application on a cell phone or something like that. In the past, used Intel technology, a bank was still a bank. Today, it's got a totally different form. 
So, and since we're transforming industries, your life as we know it, one of the things I wanted to double click on is how that's changing macroeconomic trends. One of the things we talked about with the industrial revolution was how increase in human resource productivity actually contributed positively to gross domestic product growth. And I believe you have a hypothesis that says we're fundamentally changing some of the macroeconomic theses that we have. Is that correct? Yeah. I, I mean, what you look at it, and it's one thing to make a bank more productive. So you need, let's say, you put in place an ATM and you need fewer tellers, something like that. It, it's another thing. If a bank becomes an application or a, on a cell phone, and then the bank goes away, you don't need to build a building to put the bank in. You don't need a car to get to the bank. You don't need somebody to clean up the bank. You don't need electricity to heat the bank. And this causes uh, the economy becomes remarkably efficient. And in many cases, uh, people aren't needed anymore. So this is a very different kind of environment that we're going into. And there's a real question in my mind when we're through with it, if there is going to be enough of the traditional kind of work that people did, and I realize today that everybody's scrambling to find employees, but I think a lot of work is going to go away. Well, that's interesting because if you look at certain economic productivity measurements, revenue per employee employee was something that during the Industrial Revolution, revolution, over the last 30, 40 years, we saw it go from 100,000 to a couple hundred thousand, maybe to $500,000 per employee. But in this digital universe, we're seeing revenue per employee of a million, two, three million dollars. Is that part of why you're concerned that we won't have enough work for that kind of I would say the mass market of middle-income employees? Well, yeah. I, I mean, I, if you look at this, businesses uh, should be able to operate with, or a lot of businesses. I mean, this doesn't apply to businesses that deal with physical goods, but a restaurant is an example. Plumber, as an example, uh, you're, you're not going to have much of an impact on that. But I was reflecting on retail the other day. And I was thinking about it. I used to, not that I was a big shopper, but I I used to enjoy going into retail stores. And about the only retail environment that I go to anymore is the supermarket to buy food. You know, and I go into retail environments where there is a physical necessity to go into those environments. You know, it's like I, I won't go into a retail environment by T-shirts, underwear, or blue jeans, but I do go into retail environments to buy shoes, and I realize a lot of people don't anymore because I want to actually see how they feel. And I was thinking, you know, when it comes to clothes, well, if I'm going to buy a suit, now not many people wear suits anymore, I wouldn't do that over the internet. I'd go into a retail environment, but I'm not going to go into retail environments very much anymore. So, that's a whole segment that goes away and shopping centers go away. And then I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, gee, uh, I would hate to be in the office business today. Everybody's working at home. There's so much office space anymore. Well, 
think of the amount of construction work that went into building office buildings. Now, maybe that'll go into building homes and other things, but those office buildings required people to maintain them and things like that, and all that goes away. Well, when we look at government policies that are kind of being discussed because of this exact issue that you're highlighting, and that is we just aren't going to have enough work potentially for our citizens, is the concept of universal minimum income, where governments are going to basically consider layering in that financial foundation because of this. Is that something that you think is good for our economy or just a reality we're going to have to plan to manage? Well, the way I look at it, You've got work that's important work that has economic value. You've got work that is important work that has no economic value. And think about the work that a mother does or a father does raising a child. It's vitally important that we raise children in this country. And we don't pay anybody for doing it unless they want to go out and get a job. They then want to pay somebody to take care of their children. So then that work has economic value. So why wouldn't you consider paying somebody to raise their own children? And realistically, this is crazy, but the whole structure of things is going to change so dramatically that I think that we are going to have to consider things like universal basic income because uh, there is all kinds of important work has to get done that has no economic value as far as being able to sell it on the market, but it adds value to the community. I mean, it's it's like all of us, uh, you know, used to do things like coach little league teams and what have you, and uh, everybody would agree that that work had great value, but we said it had no economic value. Well, what what's wrong with paying somebody to coach a little league team? It's that you can't sell the output of a little league team, that doesn't mean it's not vitally important to the community. Yeah, let me let me pivot back a little bit because we're talking a little bit about the evolution of technology. And now we have everyday applications of artificial intelligence. Robotics is gaining more and more traction with commercial applications. And now we're talking about the metaverse. I mean, are these technologies simply going to act to accelerate this transition to the autonomous revolution? Is that one of your hypotheses? Well, just accelerating this transition? Everything is accelerating. Yes, they accelerate the transition. And I mean, these technologies are available and we flock to them and we use them. And we don't necessarily use them in socially responsible ways. You know, one of my favorite examples is that we reduced the cost of one-to-many communications, I'm going to say by a factor of a million. So in the past, it used to cost a lot of money to talk to people. And if I wanted to do it, I had to either go through mass media, where my communication was controlled by an editor, or I had to spend a lot of money uh, to promote myself, get interviews, to run ads, to do things like that. Suddenly, we reduced the cost by this massive amount, and everybody can talk to everybody free. And as a result, in the past, 
the free market controlled free speech. And if and as a result now, because it's so cheap to talk to a lot of people, um, you can create very profitable businesses by spreading fake news and spreading conspiracy theories and by doing, you know, sending out emails to scam people and phishing emails and things like that. And so I've asked myself, suppose we had reduced the cost of one-to-many communications by a factor of 10 instead of by fictitious or hand-waving factor of a million, what would have happened? And I suspect that the economy would be a lot more responsible and there would be a lot less fake news and things like that. But what technology does is sometimes you take a very, very valuable commodity and you underprice it because now technology has become so efficient that we are underpricing very, very valuable things. And they are getting abused as a result of it. Yeah. Not only have we underpriced it, we've in many cases, we've made it free. And I think we'd all acknowledge that social media is one great example of technology now run amok. And I read an article that you wrote, and it's really talking about how social media and the fake news and how easy it is to distribute it is creating this level of polarization in society that we've never seen before. Um, and we're feeling it every day here in the United States. So who's ultimately going to be able to stem this tide of polarization? Is it government regulation or does society need to raise up and do something about it ourselves? Well, I think government regulation isn't going to work very well. I think the kind of things that I think you could do that would help a lot from a government point of view is give individuals ownership of their own private information so that it couldn't be sold all over the place. And also, you could could put in place a tax or a cost structure that would raise the cost of one-to-many communication, and you'd reduce magnitude of the problem. And I don't know whether you'd cut it in half or reduce it by an order of magnitude or not. But a lot of this is going to depend upon individuals just learning how to deal with these new environments and behaving in more responsible ways and that are good for them. And uh, we don't have any choice but to spend a lot of time in virtual space. But we can use virtual space as a tool to enhance our lives in physical space, or we can take up residence in virtual space and live there. And there's a big difference. And I use virtual space to enhance the quality of my life in physical space. So I use it to stay in contact with friends, but I still spend a lot of time direct face-to-face interactions with friends. And in virtual space, I try to manage my uh, path through it. I, I don't let virtual space just select the next thing I watch. I say consciously, what do I want to do? And I and I, I seek out those things. In that way, I make it an extremely valuable tool. 
So uh, I'm spending a lot of time in virtual space right now. I'm writing an article, and I, it's just wonderful for doing research and pulling facts out of the things and what have you. But I'm in control. I say I know what I want to go, go find. And I think that the other way people use virtual space is they they go there and they spend all of their time letting virtual space direct their activities. And uh, they end up spending hours on Facebook and watching YouTube videos. And they watch one YouTube video, which directs them to the next YouTube video. And, and that's unhealthy. Yeah, but... What's interesting, Bill, is we're having this conversation. You know, we grew up in a generation where both feet were solidly in the physical world. And then I have a son who's 26, and we were talking about it just the other day. You know, he didn't have a cell phone until he was about 12 or 13. So he had some really good foundational communication skills, interaction skills in the physical world. And then he blended it with the virtual world. But my younger son, grew up having a cell phone and access to YouTube. So one of my concerns about society is for the generations that grow up in the virtual-centric world, they're not going to have that ability to self-moderate. So how do we help the next generation be able to moderate their virtual world reality versus their physical world reality? Well, I, you know, I hate to give you mouthed answers, but I, I just think that that's something that parents have to do and but i i fundamentally believe that that we are headed for a mental health crisis of disastrous proportions because if you look at it spending tremendous amounts of time in virtual space causes emotional problems and uh, there's a lot of data about this and by the time we definitely prove it, measure it, it's it's going to be too late. But, I mean, I, I hate to say it, have to create 21st century value systems which say that what I do do is I use virtual space in a responsible way, and I realize that's a kind of a vague statement, but that you know, people sort of end up understanding what's a good way to use it. And I realize that hey, if we can't get people to agree on whether they should be vaccinated or not, it's going to be awfully uh, difficult to get people to agree on. Yeah, it's, um, it's hard to regulate individual liberty, but we yeah. definitely are very good as a society of regulating companies. And one of the takeaways I got from the autonomous revolution is that you think that Google's and Facebook's and even Apple's of the world are going to become next generations regulated utility the next pg and e is that what you're saying bill well google a lot of these things are utilities if you look at it we regulate the phone lines right and uh, we regulate things like comcast but the, it, you couldn't use these things without you know the dominant applications that sit on top of them and as a result of that you can't use the internet without these information utilities, and so that there, there's every reason to believe that they, you know, because of economies of scale and because of network effects, since you only end up with you know, one Google and one Facebook and things like that, that we should treat these things as if they are utilities 
and uh, should be regulated, yes. Well, this isn't usually a normal topic for the Metrics and Major Up podcast, but Lord help us if we expect our government to effectively regulate big tech. Because I've seen some of the Senate hearings, and it seems like there's some real informational knowledge and intellectual gaps between the tech industry and our government. Do you think the government can effectively regulate big tech in the short term, or is it going to take a while? Well, I don't think they can do it in the short term, but that was why I was kind of, I thought about policy approaches that might be good, such as if we made it expensive to use the internet, and when I say expensive, if it cost me any a minute every time I was on the internet, this would make people use the internet differently. If major internet sites, you know, that had millions of visitors or had to pay a charge for every connected minute, it would end up making it more costly and you'd see less of it. And so if Facebook had to pay any a minute tax for for everybody who was connected to it, they'd have to go out and end up charging me a dollar an hour for being connected, and I'd end up spending less time on Facebook. And these types of things might end up to reduce the problem. You're not going to make the problem go away, but it would reduce the scale of the problem. It would be tremendously helpful. You know, can't believe our 30 minutes is already coming to the end, but a quick question, because I'm really, when I thought about everything I read in your book, it actually made me a little paranoid. And I'm like, well, the good news is this is the future generation's problem, not mine. And I know that it's not true because my future generations isn't my legacy. But if you were talking to someone who just is entering college and they're thinking about this, what advice would you give them to really kind of try to make a difference as we go through this next revolution? I've thought about it somewhat from a career point of view. And I, the book, I talk about the fact that we're undergoing social phase change. What I would try to do is figure out major trends that were going on and then become associated with those trends, whether that's in areas of government that was going to deal with them or where I was going to have a select a career or what have you. So as an example, you know, the financial systems are all going to change dramatically. And we're going to see cyber currencies, sure, and uh, totally different ways of doing transactions. So one of the things that would fascinate me if I were starting a career now would be to get in the middle of that area of the cyber currencies and cyber transactions and things like that, and then become really knowledgeable about them, and then buy a career path that was associated with them. Yeah. It's interesting. You asked the question, is it from a kind of career or business perspective or from a social and societal perspective? And I hadn't thought about differentiating that because we continue to perpetuate some of the challenges as we advance technology adoption. I think about what Tesla is doing with the autonomous driving car and many other companies. I don't think we as a society are thinking about how that impacts a lot of our infrastructure 10 to 20 years from now. And we only think about how we can monetize and capitalize upon the innovation. So hopefully our listening audience can think about that and say, which way do I want to go? Do I want to kind of think about and help society adapt to this? Or do we want to capitalize on the innovation? Does that kind of make sense as two directions you could go, Bill? Yep. Well, 
Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for sharing the insights from the autonomous revolution. And to our listening audience, which is primary technology entrepreneurs and founders and operating executives, this is one of the most thought-provoking books I've read in a long time. And I'd highly encourage everyone to go to your phone, click on Amazon and purchase the autonomous revolution. Bill, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, Ray. And to our listening audience, if you're enjoying the guests and topics that we discussed like we did today with Bill David Dow and the Autonomous Revolution, it would mean the world to us if you would subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast app and go ahead and provide us a rating and even your comments on how we can make the show even better. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Bill. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit RevOpsquared.com.